Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Fitness for Consumption. I am your host, Paul Juris, along with your co-host, Gregory Gordon. Gigi, we're back again. We are back. We are back. And uh, this year, this season, we're talking about skill. And we're starting each episode with some input from our listeners about what they think the most difficult skill in sports is, and we have an interesting one. So, Gigi, why don't you tell us about this one? Yeah. So, speaking of backs, this involves a lot of running backwards, pun intended. Mm. So, we have a reply from Patrick Douglas, who is actually a colleague of myself and Jen, um, and his Twitter handle is at MuscleNerd29. MuscleNerd. MuscleNerd29. Yep. Awesome. So, uh, his reply... Uh, and I'm just going to read it verbatim here, is he said, if you consider man-to-man coverage for a cornerback one skill, then it's that. But I'd consider it a series of skills that only the best athletes in the world have a chance at doing. So just quickly, I'll summarize. A cornerback is a defensive player in football, and essentially their job is to track wide receivers or anyone that is uh, attempting to catch a pass, sometimes running backs, but they're trying to, most of their job is trying to break up a pass that's being thrown to the offensive player. Okay, so this is a really interesting one because there are so many elements to it. And I think Patrick's right. It's, you could look at this as one skill, Mm -hmm. uh, but clearly playing cornerback in the NFL or even at any level, you know, collegiate level, high school level, requires a multitude of skills. And, mm-hmm. and and in a sense, you know, this is kind of a unique illustration of the difference between skill and a skill. So you could be really good at running backwards. That's mm-hmm. a skill. But if you can't do some of the other things, like responding to what the player is doing, seeing the field, making decisions so that you're not playing the position particularly well – even though you have the skill of running backwards, you may not be a skilled cornerback. So it's an interesting nuance there. But um, there are so many fascinating 
elements to this particular selection. And one is you have to sort of keep your eye on the player you're covering and the rest of the play at the same time. So this is a case of peripheral vision being a really important part of the skill of playing cornerback. What do you think? Yeah, that and selective attention. So we're going to put a pin in it for now, but at some point we'll talk about multitasking. Mm -hmm. But essentially, like you can't have one eye on the one side of the field and one eye on the other side. You've got to quickly divert your attention to back and forth between, um, you know, what you're what you're focusing on. And so the other thing, PJ, is that when we've spoken to people about the most difficult thing in sports, we've used this Gentile's taxonomy as sort of um, a way of being able to decipher what would make something more difficult than the other. So when we put this through the ringer, so there's definitely body movement. There's one of the interesting things here is that the over the past 10 years, the rules in professional football have really changed to eliminate the defensive player from being able to put his hands on another player. So there isn't necessarily object manipulation because you can't really put your hands on a player, but you can have a hand on the offensive player, just sort of sensing where they are and how they might be moving. And For the, the first most, five yards anyway. Yeah, and then you have to be very artful about how and when you put your hands on the player. And we know good cornerbacks, they can sneak it in there. Um, and it helps them, you know, sense what the player might, may or may not be doing. And then the last thing, though, is that the offensive player, in terms of predictability, which we've all decided on is a, a major factor in terms of what makes something difficult, the offensive player, there's still a degree of unpredictability because things might change uh, as the play emerges on the field from what was called in the huddle. But generally speaking, it's not a fair fight. The offensive receiver knows the play. The defensive player, the cornerback here, has to predict what he thinks the offensive player is going to do. So there's a high level of unpredictability for the cornerback. Yeah, I think that part of the preparation for a team going into a game is to run through what they think the opposing offensive sets are going to look like. So they have a sense of what's going to happen before it happens, when that formation occurs and the defensive player is looking at the offensive formation, they should have a sense of what mm -hmm. might happen. But, you know, that's the interesting thing about competitive sports when people are working against one another. The idea in some instances is to make your opponent think that you're going to do something when in fact you do something else. Mm -hmm. So there is an anticipation that has to be present for a defensive player in anticipating that way they can respond more quickly, more effectively. But if they anticipate wrong, they get burned. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to just add a, a contrasting thought about object manipulation, because if you're a defensive back and you're covering a, a receiver and a pass is thrown, well, if you don't manipulate that object with your hands, you're not going to intercept the ball if you right. have an opportunity yeah. to intercept it. Very fair so point. intercepting a football is, in fact, object manipulation. Yeah. Um, there is intertrial variability because yeah. it's very rare that a team runs the exact same play twice in a row. Yeah. So it's really an interesting skill in a way. It, it requires anticipation and prediction, 
response capability, agility, and quickness. Mm -hmm. I like it. I thought it was a a really interesting idea. Yep. All right. So well done, Patrick Douglas. And uh, maybe we will contact you later in the season to come on and chat with us more about it. All right. Thank you, Muscle Nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So with that, I think what we want to do is get into what we're going to discuss today. And of course, we're continuing with the skill theme. And we've covered skill now in a variety of different ways. And I want to just go back to the definition. We'll start with the definition of skill. And that is consistently achieving a goal in a variety of conditions with an economy of effort. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked about goal acquisition. We've talked about the different conditions and regulatory features of the environment and open and closed skills. Now we want to get into what does it mean to have an economy of effort? And that's what today's discussion is about. The name of this episode is The Forest Through the Trees. That will become evident to people as we go through our conversation. So I want to just mention a story real quickly. When I was the strength coach for the Dallas Mavericks, we used to run our practices in the mornings. And there was one player who used to come in and the coaches would always give me a hard time about him. So it was, his name was Jamal Mashburn. Some people may know him now, Mm -hmm. but he used to run the floor during practice and the coaches used to come up to me and say, why isn't he working? You know, he's dogging it. He's not putting out, he's not putting out an effort. We really don't like what he's doing. And the reason that they're complaining to me is because I was working with him to rehabilitate his knee, which was Mm -hmm. injured. So we developed a working relationship and they thought, well, maybe if they complain to me, then I could pass this on to them. And I said, well, tell me what you see in his performance on the floor that suggests that he's dogging it. I mean, let's, let's look at what he's doing. He's the first one down the floor on offense. He's the first one down the floor on defense. He's actually doing more physical work than everybody out there. So what's the problem? Mm-hmm. And their comment was, Look at him. He doesn't look like he's making an effort. Mm -hmm. And what I said to them was, don't confuse that with lack of effort. What you're seeing right there is something that I refer to as efficiency. That's economy of effort. He is so smooth. It looks like he's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. He is so effortless in the way he moves around the floor that, mean, that doesn't mean that he's not trying. Mm-hmm. It just means he's not wasting any energy. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the outcome, he was blowing everybody away. So don't get fooled by what you see in terms of are they, are they gesturing? Are they grimacing? Are they you know, looking like they're doing it forcefully and hard and, and full of effort? The fact is you want them doing the opposite. You don't want these guys burning themselves out because they're working too hard. You want them to use just the right amount of energy in order to do the task. And that's the idea of efficiency. So funny you mentioned running, PJ, because I have a personal anecdote relating to that. So I don't know if you are familiar with the body of work from one Mr. Puff Daddy, uh, Sean Combs. (laughs) Sean Combs. Yeah. So he decided to run the New York City Marathon, coincidentally, the same year I decided to run the New York City Marathon. And... Somehow or another, I was amongst a group of runners that were all sort of running at the same pace. 
and Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, happened to be in this group. So people were so excited that Puff Daddy was running. And he, to his credit, he had one guy, I assume it was his running coach, running with him. But people were literally turned around running backwards so they could take pictures of him on their phone. And it became such a commotion, I wanted to get away from it. So I had to run for a good mile faster than I wanted to. And by the time I got away from that crowd that was running backwards to track him, I caught up with another Peloton that was running at a pace that was really at a pace faster than what I had been training at because I'd done a lot of training, but I never anticipated somewhere in the middle I would have to increase my pace for about five miles. So I stayed with this Peloton for about five miles because I was just sort of in the zone and enjoying the sights and sounds of the marathon. And then about halfway through, I just hit zero. And about the second half of the marathon, I, I had to walk, run. I was completely struggling. So because I had to run faster, it was outside of my efficiency, outside of the the what I had trained for running. And so it really affected my ability to maintain the pace that I trained at. So I was the complete opposite of Jamal Mashburn. I had very little efficiency to the point where it, it really um, diminished my ability to complete the marathon. You know, and, and wasting energy is very detrimental in a lot of these things, whether it's playing basketball or running a marathon or uh, doing any type of activity where performance can be hindered, especially over time. You know, unless the goal is to lose weight, uh, we want to try to be efficient, mm -hmm. right? If you want to lose weight, then you should be as inefficient as you possibly can. Like, use more energy than you could ever need if that's the goal. Perhaps, yeah. So, so that, you know, in that case, we can waste all the energy we want. But in the sense of training... And in the context of skill and what we're mm -hmm. trying to discuss here, I think we should care about efficiency. Mm -hmm. And for example, a lot of what I hear and see in the gyms today involves telling people to contract more and more muscle. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah. Right, especially around the core. Keep your core tight. Keep your abs tight. Contract this. Squeeze this. And so when we ask people to do that, we're asking them basically to get into a state of what I would refer to as hypercontractility, right? We're contracting so much muscle in trying to perform these movements that we end up in something called a high degree of co-contraction. Mm -hmm. So you've heard of that. How mm -hmm. would you describe or define co-contraction? Yeah, and we've actually spoken about this in an early episode when we were talking about degrees of freedom. And so the mm -hmm. example I always use is imagine someone rollerblading for the first time. Do they look fluid? And are they moving around like they're at a disco rink? Uh, no, they, they're, they look like robots. They've got so much co-contraction, they're like moving one joint at a time almost like Frankenstein. And it's because they don't, they haven't developed the degrees of freedom yet to allow smooth, controlled motion. Yeah, so co-contraction fundamentally means that you have multiple muscles contracting around a joint. When you mm -hmm. think of it in the context of a single joint, co-contraction means that there are lots of muscles contracting around the joint. And 
when they're all contracting at a fairly high level, really they're opposing motion. What they're doing is they're stiffening the joint. Mm -hmm. The more co-contraction you get, the more stiffness you get, which mm -hmm. is your example of someone on rollerblades and why they look so disjointed because they're very, very stiff and they can't move fluidly. Mm -hmm. So the notion of co-contraction or high degrees of co-contraction basically suggests that smooth, fluid, efficient movement is nearly impossible to execute. And a great example of that is squatting on a BOSU or a right. physio ball. Right. We see people do this all the time, but the problem here is as soon as you get onto a surface like that, a labile surface, and you're starting to jiggle because the surface is moving underneath you, mm -hmm. the natural response of the neuromuscular system is to enter into high states of co-contraction. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it wants to stiffen all the joints to keep you from moving. Mm -hmm. So what we're really doing is we're getting someone to become more stable. The joints stabilize, the body stabilizes, and the ultimate goal is not to move. But there's a conflict here because in order to squat on the ball, you have to move. Right. Yeah. So what's happening is the person who's doing it has to simultaneously stabilize and move. Well, that's yep. not possible. <laughs> You can't co-contract all the joints and stiffen them and then ask the body to move fluidly at the same time. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you see somebody squatting on a BOSU is they're all jerky and, and mm -hmm. they're jittery, right? Mm -hmm. And it looks like it's completely uncoordinated. And mm -hmm. of course, people say, well, they don't have good core stability. And or what I always hear is that, see, see that, see that jerkiness? Those, those are all the little stabilizer muscles working. With a little stabilizer yeah, muscle. The They're not little, little, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Those, those stabilizer Hamstring, muscles quadriceps, are... Yeah. yeah, glutes, and they're not yeah. little at all. Yeah. But no, what you're seeing there is not an indication of instability. And it's not a lack of... Well, it is a lack of coordination because what we're really seeing is evidence of spasticity. When you're asking the system to simultaneously contract and move, you're now creating conflict so the brain doesn't know what to do so it's sort of like move stop move stop mm -hmm. move stop mm -hmm. and you end up with this really jerk jerky unsmooth uncharacteristic kind of movement pattern that we attribute to some type of instability or some type of core instability and it's not what it is mm -hmm. it's the fact that we're co-contracting muscles at the same time that we're trying to move and yeah. the output, by the way, is you can get a reduction in force output of as much as 70%. So that's a really good point um, because every time I have this conversation with someone that is, you know, sees things from a, a different perspective and, and really puts a lot of stock into doing unstable surface training and squatting on top of unstable surfaces is that they'll always say, but yeah, but let me show you this video of this person that's doing it and it looks pretty fluid. And the truth is you can acclimate to it. And if you do it often enough, you're giving your body this totally, as you mentioned, this totally incongruous command that you want to move as soon as you get it onto an unstable surface, your body's, all the receptors in your body are, are aware of it and you start to try to stiffen up your joints. But if you do it often enough, you can habituate to it to some degree, but at the expense of really reducing your force output. So yeah, you could probably squat on there with maybe 10% of your plantar flexor activity because if you plantar flex too hard, you're going to, you know, you're going to 
push yourself off of an unstable surface. So can you do it? Can you train it and get it better to the point where it looks smooth and fluid? Yeah, I've seen it. And if you need that, literally, like people that have shown me this stuff do literal circus stuff. So yeah, for that, if that is part of what you like to do or that's part of what you need to do for your job, mazel tov. Yeah, that, it makes sense to put that in your training program. But if you're doing this because you think it's quote unquote activating these little stabilizer muscles or it's making your core work harder or something, that's not a good reason to do it. No, I agree. And when you have a reduction in force output like that, you may think you're making progress, but in fact, you're not. And you make an interesting point about the plantar flexor side of it. You know, we are not symmetrical beings. And that's also something that people have to let go of. We have this obsession with trying to create this perfect symmetry between left side and right side. It just doesn't happen. Humans aren't that symmetrical. And when you do a squat on the ground you will naturally apply more force through one limb than you do through the other. If you're on a labile surface like a BOSU or a physio ball, then that will occur. And when you do that, it's going to cause the ball to become disfigured, all right, or mm -hmm. disformed so mm -hmm. that it becomes more unstable. So mm -hmm. the result then is you have to create symmetry, but you can't make the weaker side stronger. Mm -hmm. You can't increase the force output on the weak side. Mm -hmm. So what you end up doing is down-regulating the strong side so it matches the weak side. Mm -hmm. In this case, you're never going to increase your strength because you're always having to down-regulate the system in order to create this symmetry. So in terms of a strength-building application, it doesn't really work. And, you know, not to keep belaboring this, but it's high risk. So is the risk and the benefit worth the time investment that it would take you to become somewhat proficient at it? And I would say no. So PJ, we're talking a lot about strength here. And you just mentioned that if I'm on an unstable device like that, due to some natural um, asymmetry side to side, I have to downregulate force output. So when we're talking about strength, I've always heard people define strength as the ability to generate force. And if you look at most textbooks, that's typically what it says. And that definition worked for me for a long time until I heard you phrase it differently, which was strength is the ability to apply force. And so we were just talking about some force application. So let's let's unpack that a little bit more. Sure. You know, it's an it's an interesting nuance between generation and application. In one mm -hmm. sense, we could we could argue that if you're generating force, you're applying it. And and really it's true. By but by saying it's the ability to apply force, it's an observable application that that we have when someone actually moves an object. And, and when we talk about force, the definition of force is a push or a pull with the intention of accelerating an object. That's what force is. Mm -hmm. So when we see force applied, something is changing, something is accelerating. If we're applying force to an object, then that object is moving. If we're applying force to the ground through our limbs, we're moving. Mm -hmm. But it's some observable result of the force that we generate. 
-hmm. So what I like to see is what is the applied force here? And sometimes people confuse that with how hard the muscles are contracting. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problem exists. Muscles can contract at a very, very high level. But if you have a lot of co-contraction and you have opposing muscles working against each other, which mm -hmm. is what opposing muscles do, mm -hmm. then the net outcome of that, the net production or application is next to zero. Mm -hmm. So I can have my biceps and triceps, for example, contracting maximally, which is a high level of effort. But because they're in opposition to one another, the net force is zero. And so you're not applying anything. So we have to be really cognizant of what happens to outcomes, what happens to output, what happens to the acceleration of objects when we have high degrees of co-contraction. Yeah, because, and we've spoken about this with um, Dr. Bain before, which is, ironically, you can have higher levels of EMG activity, which shows you action potential to muscles, but less applied force output because of all that co-contraction. And what we want to do is we want to talk a little bit about some of the science behind this. Right? We, here are the themes, here are the concepts that we're discussing, efficiency, what happens with co-contraction? What does that mean? How does it affect output force application? All right, so we've talked about it in theory. The question is, what does the research say? And we're going to talk about some research studies right after this short break. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high-quality exercise. And now, let's get back to our conversation. Okay, we are back after the break, and we're talking about efficiency, economy of effort. We brought up this idea that too much co-contraction actually is detrimental to fluid movement because it has a tendency, first of all, and, and maybe most importantly, of limiting the application of force, restricting the application of force. So we discussed that in theory, and now we need to sort of get into some research to provide people with some evidence about it. Yeah, so funny enough, we just happened to have a guy that did a dissertation in that, I think. Right, PJ? <laughs> uh, just so happens. <laughs> How handy. <laughs> so, yeah. So, actually, my doctoral dissertation was looking at this very thing. It was to try to understand the effects of an environmental constraint on muscle co-contraction and how that affected force application. And so basically what this was, was an EMG study, and it was also a motion study. Okay. And what I examined was the relationship, the working relationship between the biceps and the triceps during two different kinds of elbow flexion movements, mm -hmm. all right, or biceps curls. Okay. And what I mean by two different types is in one condition, subjects were using a dumbbell with their arm over an incline bench. And so we okay. set the incline. And then they had to do a 
flexion and elbow flexion movement to a target and stop at the target and move as fast as they possibly could. And they were given 75% of their one repetition maximum. So it was a normalized load. Okay. In the second condition, they were doing it on a machine. And at the time, it was a Cybex Eagle biceps machine. Gotcha. So the difference between the two conditions was the natural pattern of resistance that might occur with a dumbbell as the moment arm changes through the range of motion. Mm -hmm. But on a machine, that resistance pattern is dictated by the cam design and the cam shape. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to look at these two resistance patterns, the free weight movement, you've got a rapid rise to peak resistance and then a gradual fall off. Whereas on the cam, what you have is a rise to a peak resistance and then the radius of that cam is constant for a considerable period of time or through the range of motion. Mm -hmm. So peak resistance remains constant for a very long part of the range of motion, and then it sort of falls off at the very, very end. Right, and then for those that have been listening along, we're talking about torque here, right? So we're talking about as you're going through the motion, the torque change on the dumbbell is significantly different than the torque changes on the machine curl. That's exactly right. And so each subject was working at 75% of max as determined on each device in each mm -hmm. condition. Mm -hmm. And they had to do an elbow flexion movement to a target. There was a little target with like, it looked like a bullseye. Okay. And they had to get their hand or the manipulandum to that target as fast as they possibly could and stop there. Okay. Right? So by forcing them to stop there required the antagonist to kick in. Mm -hmm. And what we saw basically, first of all, the free weight condition, everybody moved faster. There was a significant difference in movement speed between the free weight condition and the cam condition. Hmm. And what was also interesting is that the EMG of the biceps was lower in the free weight condition than in the cam condition. Hmm. So the acceleration rate in the free weight was greater. So the applied force was significantly greater with the free weight, even though the EMG activity in the biceps was lower. Interesting. So that tells you that there's something going on here. And what we really discovered is that when you're working on the cam, because that peak force or torque was maintained so long, it forced the agonist muscle to remain in contraction longer. But because the people were moving to a target, the antagonist, the triceps, was kicking in in order to slow the limb down in order to get the, the arm to stop at the target. But the greater the contraction level in the biceps, that evoked a greater contraction level in the triceps. And so the condition created a very high degree of co-contraction, resulting in slower movement to target, even though the EMG, the muscle activity, was greater. Wow. And so there's also a fancy name for this phenomenon, right? Something called triphasic activation. Triphasic EMG, yes. So normal triphasic EMG is when the agonist contracts, and we mm -hmm. see that in the EMG so waveform. Yeah, let's walk it through the bicep curl. So I've got the dumbbell in my hand. Right. So I'm going to start accelerating it up towards my shoulder. So, Correct. And we can all imagine the agonist, the bicep in this case, certainly needs to generate some and apply some force to the dumbbell to start moving it. Right. So what you see in the EMG is a big spike in the EMG wave. Mm -hmm. So this is indication that the biceps is being activated at a very significant level in order to accelerate the dumbbell. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And of course, the heavier it is and the faster you want to move it, the greater that EMG activity in the agonist at that point. Once the dumbbell starts to move and it gains some inertia, the agonist reduces its activity. And then what happens is the antagonist kicks in in order to decelerate the limb and bring it to a stop at the target. Mm. So that's the second contraction. Now, then, PJ, if I can interrupt yeah. really quickly, in terms of milliseconds, what's the time lapse between agonist and that first wave of antagonist activity? Well, it depends on how fast you're moving. Okay. Right? So the faster you go, the shorter the, the, the latency between mm -hmm. agonist and antagonist. So the actual time itself, I mean, it could be milliseconds or depending on how slowly you're moving, it could even be a second. Okay. But in your study, it's... Uh, do you remember that it's within milliseconds, correct? It's within milliseconds that this happens, right? So you're moving very rapidly. You get this huge burst out of the agonist. It shuts off. The antagonist kicks in to decelerate the limb. And then after you bring it to a stop, just before the movement completely stops, the agonist kicks in again, hence triphasic, agonist, antagonist, agonist, and what that does is it stabilizes and stiffens the joint and brings you to a stop and holds you there. Mm. So that happened in the free weight condition, but oddly enough, not in the machine condition. Mm. So what did you guys make from that? What we determined is because the cam was forcing the agonist to stay on longer, the system didn't necessarily want to begin stopping. So after a few repetitions, you start to see the antagonist go away. Mm. So the antagonist, and by the way, the antagonist never completely goes away. Mm -hmm. And this is something we can talk about if we yeah, want to stick a pin in reciprocal yeah. inhibition. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we'll talk about that. Reciprocal inhibition is this notion that when the agonist contracts, the antagonist remains quiet. That's not necessarily what's going on here. Yeah, and, and by the way, any I can imagine all the personal trainers that are listening to this, their ears are smoking now because the image that we have all seen from taking personal training certification courses is exactly this, a bicep and a tricep and an image of one side contracting and one side relaxing. So, yes, well, and, and in let's fact, put a that, pin in it for a second. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen, and we can talk, we'll mm. do an episode on that perhaps, and we can bring up a lot of research that addresses it. But the fact of the matter is that when you change the conditions in the way that I did in, in my dissertation, it forced the system to have two muscles contracting virtually simultaneously. And since the goal was to move as quickly as possible, that type of co-contraction was highly inefficient and highly unproductive. It was counterproductive to what we were trying to do. And that's a really important consideration then when you're asking people to move and you're also asking them to tighten all these muscles and maybe arbitrarily tighten them, you in fact could be creating these co-contractive conditions that are doing nothing but making it harder to move. Mm -hmm. And just one question I have to ask here. So not our audience, but I know there are people out there that have a fear of using machines, and particularly if you're going from freeway to a machine, that the machine might disrupt your cortical organization of how to move your elbow. So did you have any 
subjects post-study that no longer knew how to flex their elbow after using the machine. Well, none that complained to me anyway. <laughs> okay. So I didn't get any lawsuits okay. from anybody. <laughs> so no. we can't say categorically, but... No, and there's another kind of interesting element to this. And, you know, there's this notion that, and maybe Malcolm Gladwell helped to perpetrate this thing, but that you have to do something 10,000 times before the nervous system or before you really well, end up. Yeah, it's an Erickson study. Yeah. but Okay. So, and there are some people in, in fitness who have said that you have to do movements multiple thousands of times before they become ingrained. And you know, I mentioned a minute ago that once the, the subject understood what the demands of the task mm-hmm. were, and that's cognitive substrates, mm-hmm. that they knew in the CAM condition, the machine condition, mm-hmm. that the CAM was requiring them to maintain agonist activity longer through the range of motion. What you start to see is the antagonist activity starts to decrease. Again, it doesn't disappear but it decreases. And so what the system is doing is it's responding to this state, to this environmental constraint by changing the co-contractile activity between Mm -hmm. these muscles. And it only took, wait for it, six repetitions. Okay, now in real time, how long does six repetitions take here? I mean, if you're doing one repetition per second, it takes six seconds. Six seconds. So somehow the, the, the person's brain was able to figure out how to scale the task within six seconds. Within six seconds. Gotcha. You know, so when we walk around thinking that it takes thousands and thousands of repetitions for someone to learn a motor skill, mm-hmm. you know, these adjustments were occurring almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And that's what the nervous system is capable of doing. So I'm just going to throw that out there for people to ponder uh, because it's suggesting very different from the information that's being spoon-fed to us. Yeah, and let me be a good uh, broadcaster here and tease to the episode that will be coming out uh, soon or will have played already, which is cueing and feedback. And did you give these subjects any specific cueing and feedback to change those uh, activation patterns or they just kind of figured it out on their own as they gained experience? Uh, the, the only instruction I gave them was to move the weight as fast as possible to the target. Mm. There was no other instruction given at all. And so they weren't even considering what they were doing with their muscles. All they were focusing on was moving the weight until their hand got to the target. They weren't thinking, oh, I got to contract my biceps mm-hmm. for two milliseconds and then my triceps for six milliseconds. No, it's, it just happens. But at the same time, that movement is getting more efficient because the system was changing this relationship between these two muscles. And by deactivating on some level the antagonist muscle, it was allowing the movement to occur a little bit more efficiently. Still not as efficient as the other environmental condition, but the efficiency improved by Mm. reducing the co-contraction. And they figured it out by themselves. Uh, Yes. All right. Well, that's fascinating stuff. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with some more fascinating stuff on lunches. All right, 
And we're back. So we've been talking about efficiency and co-contractions and movement and how to generate smooth fluid movement. So PJ, there is a large can of worms out in the fitness world, and that is the lunge. The lunge itself has its own can of worms because there is a ton of ink and time devoted to people looking at how you should do a lunge in terms of your body position, your trunk position, your knee position, your ankle position. So I'm going to ask you a question. Can exercise technique affect movement efficiency in the lunge? Uh, that's a great question, Gigi. And you know, here's the thing. This should not be a controversy any longer. I mean, it's time that people got over this thing because um, I would think that we would have moved past all of the dogma and conventional wisdom. But I have to say, you know what? I was at Ursa in Dallas in October, mm-hmm. and I was meeting with a whole bunch of people. And one of the new things in fitness now is to try to do some motion capture technology through single lens cameras in computers. Yeah. Peloton's just coming out with their own, actually. Yeah, and there's a there are a bunch of companies that are doing this. I don't think it's perfected well enough necessarily to get too deep into motion analysis, but mm-hmm. the reason that I mention it is I was at a booth and I was looking at a product and they had a personal trainer there with them and she was demonstrating the lunge in front of the camera so that they could do the motion analysis. So I'm sure Quick, sorry to interrupt you, PJ, but we should probably define what the dogma is, just in case anybody doesn't know for the lunge. Well, so just to tell you what she was doing, you know, she was demonstrating here, let me show you the right way to do a lunge. And we're Mm going to show you how the system is going to track it and tell you when you're doing it wrong. And sure enough, the right way for her to Mm -hmm. do it was to have the back vertical, the Mm -hmm thigh, the leg parallel, and the shank perpendicular to the floor. So what we call it the 90-90 position. Mm -hmm. You're a 90 degree angle at the knee, a 90 degree angle at the hip, and the knee is aligned directly over the ankle. Yeah. So when someone thinks of a lunge, that's typically the image that comes in their mind. Yeah. Go to YouTube. Yep. Go to YouTube and just do a search on the correct lunge technique And 99% of what you see is going to show you that. And then the dogma is, in particular, not to let the knee migrate towards the toes because the dogma says bad things will happen. Bad things will happen when you do that. And so the question is, can technique affect movement efficiency? Mm -hmm. And to answer that question, I'm going to refer to another study that I co-authored. All right. in this case. And this one is a study that was published by uh, Corey Hoffman, Derek Holyoke, and myself. Mm -hmm. And it was published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in 2017. Mm -hmm. And it was entitled Trunk and Shank Position Influences Patellofemoral Joint Stress in the Lead and Trail Limbs During the Forward Lunge Exercise. And we're going to put this in the show notes. Right. And just, I think everyone knows, but typically all the dogma for the lunge is because people have this concern about stresses on the knee. Correct. And that's really what the focus is. Let's position the forward leg so that we can minimize stress on the forward knee. Right. Now, what we were looking at was, well, okay, everybody's concerned about the forward knee, but what about the back leg? Mm -hmm. We hadn't seen up until that point 
any kind of research that compared the stress in the lead knee to the stress in the trail knee when someone was doing these types of lunges. And so that was really what we wanted to look at. And there were two criterion measures that we examined. One was peak patellofemoral joint reaction force. So patellofemoral joint reaction force is the force of the kneecap, the patella being driven down into the joint space during the exercise. Mm -hmm. Patellofemoral joint reaction force is what ultimately causes runner's knee Mm -hmm. or patellofemoral pain syndrome. Mm -hmm. So any extensive or excessive force there is going to create some issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other thing we were looking at was the patellofemoral joint reaction force impulse. So when we look at a peak force, that's an instant in time, an Mm -hmm. instantaneous force. And we say it's the highest force that occurs throughout the range of motion. Mm -hmm. When you look at an impulse, you're looking at the aggregate of Mm -hmm. all the force throughout the range of motion because Mm -hmm. the peak force or the instantaneous force is changing over time. So Mm -hmm. the impulse gives you a sense of what is the total force acting on the joint. Mm -hmm. And we looked at three different positions. One was allowing the body to go forward. Forward means that the trunk is inclined forward and the leg, the lead leg is actually pressed forward so that the knee is past the toe. Mm-hmm. So that's it the forward position. Like, yeah, for someone to visualize it in their mind's eye, it almost looks like if you're reaching forward for something. If there's an object spot. on the ground in front yeah. of you and you were going to lunge and pick it up, that's what yeah. it would look like. Yeah. Okay. The next one is sort of this in-between position where the knee is behind the toe, but the trunk is inclined forward. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, we looked at this 90-90 position, right? The knee over the ankle and the trunk up vertical. Mm -hmm. So that was the 90-90. Right. We looked at the load duration, how long load was being applied to the limbs. We looked at muscle activation, EMG activity, and we looked at the patellofemoral joint forces and impulses. So that's kind of what our study Mm -hmm. did. And so the results were really interesting. So the When you allowed the body to go forward, and I'm really, for this comparison, I'm just going to look at the forward position and the 90-90 position. Yeah. All right. When you allow the body to go forward, the patellofemoral joint force in the lead knee is 4.5% greater Hmm. than in the 90-90 position. Okay. Okay. So going forward, you got a four and a half percent greater patellofemoral force than when you're upright. So based on your study, for those that argue that that position of the knee getting into more flexion creates more patellofemoral joint force, based on your study, that's correct. It's correct. I mean, four and a half percent, that's different. Mm -hmm. And then the impulse, if we look at the impulse, which is the total force applied through the range of motion, that impulse in the lead knee was 21% greater in the forward position than in the 90-90 position. Mm -hmm. So clearly, when you look at the lead leg, there's a little bit more force being applied to the patellofemoral joint when you're in the forward position versus this upright Mm -hmm. position. But here's where it gets really interesting. Okay. We looked at the trail leg. Mm -hmm. And what we found in the trail leg was that the peak patellofemoral force in the trail knee was 56% greater 
in the 90-90 position than the wow. forward position. Wow. So while the peak patellofemoral force in the lead knee was 4.5% greater in the forward position, the peak patellofemoral force in the trail knee was 56% greater in the upright position, in the 90-90 position, than the forward position. Yeah. That's a huge difference. Right. Okay. The impulse was also 55% greater through the range of motion in the 90-90 position. So what we discovered was in the attempt to mitigate or minimize the forces acting on the lead knee by doing this 90-90 position, mm-hmm. you overwhelmingly load the trail knee. And so the potential harm that you're doing to the trail knee is 50% greater Mm -hmm. than what you're doing in the front knee. Having the benefit of uh, reading the study, what you mentioned there that I think is sort of um, not something that comes to mind when someone is thinking about a lunge, but you're on the rear leg almost double the time because the forward leg is getting off the ground. Then, you know, part of that force is absorbing the initial shock. But that rear leg, not only are the for- the impulse and the, the peak force is much higher, you're on it for twice the amount of time. That's exactly right. So when you do a lunge in that position, it basically throws your weight onto your back leg. And the amount of time that you're on that back leg in order to get yourself back to the starting position is 43% longer mm-hmm. than you would be if you were just allowing your body to go forward and pushing off into the ground. Right. Now, funny enough, when someone does that, and most people, when they're lunging, they do it, uh, maybe the load isn't symmetrical, but they're doing it symmetrically, meaning they're just doing both their right and their left side. So both legs have the chance to be the forward leg and the trailing leg. Um and if their knees hurt the following day, they almost always blame it on like the forward leg or something. You know, it wouldn't occur to someone to think about the loads on the rear leg. <laughs> That's a really good point. I mean, we always, it's sort of like, we're, you know, we're working out on ellipticals and we say, I don't know why my knee hurts, so I'm going to use the elliptical. But it's the elliptical that's causing your knee to hurt. So that's a whole nother can of worms mm-hmm. that we can open up. But, you know, what, what is fascinating to me is we get so caught up in the conventional wisdom that we we accept things the way they are and we insist that they have to be this way and then mm-hmm. you start looking at things from a different perspective in this case what's going on in the trail leg and what we learn is we're doing so much more potential harm to the trail leg when we do it this way that it doesn't matter that we have a four and a half percent increase in the in the lead knee stress. It doesn't matter. It's it's negligible compared to what we're doing to the back knee. And we sort of put this to a test. And I don't know if you recall, Gigi, but at Cybex we used to do these workshops and we did this sort of playful exercise with our attendees where we would actually ask them to do the two different types of lunges. And we just got them to think about how efficient is it to move this way. And we, we gave them the exercises. We gave them the instructions to perform it in each one of those techniques. And then we simply asked them questions like, which position allowed you to move better? 
Which one allowed you to get back to the starting position more effectively? Which felt like it was a little bit more effortless so mm -hmm. that you could really move through space? Which one allowed you to move faster? Mm -hmm. And everybody that did this said the same thing, that when you allow your body to move forward and get your center of mass forward over the front leg, it's much easier to get back to the starting position. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about efficiency. Yeah. So there's less muscle contraction going on. The right muscles are turning on and you're moving efficiently and effortlessly while at the same time working those muscles that you want to get stronger. Yeah. So I have some personal experience. So after, you know, however many years ago that was, I think that was 2013, I was working for you at the Cybex Research Institute. So I started adapting that that more inclined version of the lunge with my clients. And what I would see, and typically what I still see, is that if I'm working with someone and like we're just starting to work together and I ask them to do a lunge, they almost all, almost by default, they always go to the version that that trainer showed at the Ursa show, the 90-90 version of the lunge. And then I'll, I'll actually typically put out like a quarter or something like a target and I'll just give some basic outline of how I want them to organize themselves to let the shank and trunk go forward. And what I see is that, and I, because I haven't done a research study, I, I can't say for sure, but my hunch is that when you do that incline lunge, in the very beginning, it feels like you're falling forward and it feels a little mm -hmm. bit scary. So mm -hmm. as a way of sort of bailing out, people bring their trunk backwards a little bit to slow down the acceleration. So that's what I think I'm seeing. But over time, as people become more comfortable with it, they ultimately learn how to do the incline lunge. And to your point about efficiency, once they get the hang of it, they default to that position because it's just become, in fact, in fact easier because it's, it's more efficient to get back to that starting position. Yeah, and I think there's probably a learning curve. You know, Whenever yeah. we do something a certain way for a prolonged period of time, and then we're asked to do it differently. Naturally, people will struggle a little bit, but that mm -hmm. doesn't make it wrong. Sure. It means that the person has to develop the skill of performing it in that way. And part of the skill then becomes more efficient movement. That will evolve over time. So there's no question that moving in a certain way can be more efficient and then also more effective and we want to talk about some of these practical implications and practical applications, but we're going to do that in our next segment. All right, welcome back, everyone. Uh, we are talking about movement efficiency, and we just finished covering some research topics that sort of get into this notion of co-contraction and what happens when muscles are contracting on top of each other and how it actually inhibits movement. And we said that we're going to get into practical matters. And as usual, we want to make this practical. We want to bring this from the lab into the gym. And so that's what our focus is right now. And what I want to say about this is I think as coaches, as trainers, we're really missing the forest through the trees. And the reason that I say that is because we are so focused on people doing things, quote unquote, right. Mm -hmm. 
I think we get bogged down in the details of movement that often end up inhibiting efficient motion, not facilitating efficient motion. We're talking about where the knee has to be and where the spine has to be and how this is contracting and that is tightening. And all of those things are the details that seem, in my opinion, to be a little bit less important than trying to figure out how to get someone to move efficiently. And, you know, in, in the case of lunges and many other change in direction activities, I think what people should be focusing on is how to create an effective posture that promotes displacement at the center of mass. Mm, and PJ, I know we've covered this in earlier podcasts, but just for the record, when you say posture, you don't necessarily mean someone maintaining a neutral spine throughout an entire exercise, correct? That's correct. You know, sometimes to your point, sometimes people in thinking of posture, they're thinking of structural alignment. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a position, a body position that allows us to get our center of mass positioned just right so that when we generate force through it, it allows us to move as smoothly and effectively as possible. So mm -hmm. let me illustrate that right. a little bit. And I think a really useful illustration for something like that is billiards. All and right. imagine, for example, a cue ball. It's being struck. It's moving towards another ball. If that cue ball contacts the second ball right in the center, right through its center of mass, then that second ball is going to move in the same direction as the cue ball. Mm -hmm. But if the cue ball strikes the second ball off center, to the left or right of center, its force is being applied eccentric to the center of mass of the second ball. And what that does is it causes distortion. So imagine if the cue ball hits the second ball to the left, mm -hmm. that second ball is going to go to the right. Mm -hmm. Right. If the cue ball hits the second ball to the right of its center of mass, the second ball is going to go to the left. You can sort of visualize mm -hmm. this in your mind's eye. We call that distortion. So what is actually happening in the lunge, and this is relating to the study that I was discussing that we published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, when your body's upright, when the trunk is upright, the center of mass is now back over the base of support. Mm -hmm. So when you produce force down into the ground through the, the lead foot, it comes up and in front of the center of mass. Mm -hmm. And it's also above it. So it ends up pushing the center of mass back and down. Mm. And that's why you end up with all of your weight on your back foot. Mm. It's very inefficient. So in order to move efficiently, what we want to do is we want to position the center of mass so that when we create a force, or in this case, a ground reaction force, that ground reaction force is directed right back through the center of mass, and that will get us to move very efficiently, very effectively through space, faster, accelerate better, move more effectively. And you know what's really cool about that is that Everyone that's listening to this kind of knows this stuff intuitively. If you've ever been on a subway, if you've ever played basketball, if you've ever walked your dog that's pulling you on a leash, you just know, like, let's just use the 
dog on a leash example. Like if your dog sees a squirrel and takes off and pulls you forward, what do you do? You you go back a little bit. So you just react to that force. So everyone has sort of um and if you want to go forward with your dog, then you just lean in that direction. So everyone sort of has an intuitive first-hand example with that. You know, it's really funny that you mentioned dog because I just happened to be watching uh the other day on television, there was the Westminster Dog Show <laughs> I love Agility Contest. Oh, nice. So this is really cool. You know, it's it's watching dogs run around through obstacle courses and they time them through the obstacle <laughs> course. Now, what does this have to do with these dogs? Well, what was fascinating to me is that one of the obstacles in the course w- were agility poles. So basically, it's a slalom yeah, setup. The uh-huh. dog has to go in and out of these poles that are arranged vertically in space. And what was incredible to me was the way the dogs were swinging their front legs side to side in order to maneuver through these poles. It's actually the way a running back does it in, in an NFL game, the way they cut. Their, the dogs were doing it exactly the way you would expect them to do it. And what they are ultimately doing is swinging their legs underneath them and angulating their body in such a way that when they apply force into the ground through their legs, it moves their center of mass exactly in the direction they want to go. So here's the thing. Yeah. Dogs know how to do this <laughs> intuitively. Yeah. All right. So you'll have to give us that the episode number of that Westminster Dog Show to see it. But that's it, awesome. It's amazing. So yeah. you know what, people? If dogs can do this, then humans can do this. If only we would stop interfering <laughs> with their ability to do it. Well said. So one last point about this is, from my point of view, is, um, you know, I'm not a fan of the term injury prevention. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've talked about this, Gigi. Mm -hmm. I've said over and over, we can't prevent injuries. We don't know that someone's going to get hurt until they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, All the time and effort that's spent in injury prevention, in my mind, you know, people get injured anyway. Mm -hmm. But here's a thought. Instead of focusing on injury prevention, why don't we instead focus on helping people move efficiently? Mm-hmm. Right? If we can improve efficiency of movement and not worry so much about muscle contraction and joint position and all these other things, but by moving efficiently, what we're going to do is minimize the amount of co-contraction, minimize all these activities and muscle activities in the body that ultimately make our movements jerkier, that make it more difficult to move, as I was demonstrating in my dissertation, co-contraction inhibits motion. It makes it much more difficult. If we focus on efficiency, then we can give ourselves the best opportunity to perform at a higher level Mm -hmm. with the minimum amount of imposed stress. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is a recipe for avoiding or limiting the potential for injury. Yeah, I love it. And I think that's fair. But as a clinician um, that arguably spends a lot of his time sort of at the tree level, you know, when I'm in my clinic and I'm treating people joint by joint, muscle by muscle, Mm -hmm. um, I have a slightly different perspective. So I could not agree more with the injury prevention term. It's just too categorical for me. And it's along the lines of when, like a guarantee. And I, one of the first things I tell people is that I'm not going to fix you and I'm not going to guarantee anything. That's, that's not what I do. So mm-hmm. 
Um, I do like the term injury threshold, though, because like the wooden chair I'm sitting on now or the plastic water bottle, every material has a threshold to which it can withstand stress. And beyond mm -hmm. that, it's going to break or tear or shatter. Um, and our human tissues are no different. They have a stress threshold. And the good thing about the human body is that it's adaptable. It's trainable. So I think... If someone listens to what we've been talking about since we started this podcast, taking this ecosystem approach, which definitely incorporates sufficient movement, but also, look, range of motion training, strength training, power training, cognitive load training, um, velocity training, you know, all the different things we've spoken about, I think all of that helps you um, take the injury threshold of the tissues further away from the point to where you might be coming up close to injuring those tissues. And again, it's not a guarantee. You can't necessarily prevent, you know, sometimes some injuries are, if you fall like two stories high, you know, nothing you do in the gym is necessarily going to uh, prevent breaking some bones or spraining some ankles. But realistically speaking, a well-rounded program, I think, can take your tissues further away from the injury threshold. And, you know, that's obviously a huge reason of why a lot of us exercise. Sure. And look, I think with something like this, there's no clear formula, recipe, yeah. guideline that says, yep. yeah, I mean, and this is sort of a, I need to work with this. I need to try to understand what I'm doing in order to move people away from that threshold. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it means pushing people up to the threshold in mm -hmm. order to get them acclimated to working under those levels of stress. There's no question about it. And that's what progressive overload is, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we do need to get there. But this also takes some common sense. And I think in most training applications, the best approach is do no harm, right? Make sure that you understand the ramifications of anything that you do with somebody um, and, and work them as much as you can to try to accomplish the goal of reducing those tissue thresholds. So I, I agree with you. Um, and so with that, I'm going to ask you, as I always do after at the end of every episode, what really matters, Gigi? All right. So true to my Libra nature, um, when it comes to what really matters, I see things from another side too, which is that in the ecosystem, there is a place for inefficiency. So PJ, I don't know what you think about this, but when I think of inefficiency, it's congruous to learning. So motor learning by default requires being inefficient as we've spoken about in prior episodes. So there's that mm -hmm. cognitive phase, there's that associated phase, and that those early phases, you are not efficient. You haven't learned what to do yet with any sort of efficiency. So to scale up to the forest for the trees view, ideally, in my mind, the training environment is where you want to actually specifically incorporate inefficiency in terms of learning new things, maybe using higher velocity, maybe using higher load, maybe cognitive loading, maybe pursuit tracking, a lot of these different things we've spoken about. For the time when you need to perform, and some of our listeners might be athletes, some of our listeners might be UPS uh, drivers, some of our listeners might be cops. So whatever your performance arena is, it could just be, you know, if I've sadly moved about 
four times in the past five years. So I know what it's like to help movers move equipment and lug a bunch of heavy equipment. You want to be efficient. If you're doing that eight hours a day, you're not trying to put any undue strain on your body that you don't have to. And when you see these movers, they know how to move these couches like immediately with the most efficient positions possible. So in whatever your performance arena is, yeah, you want maximal efficiency. In whatever your training arena is, I think you want to selectively incorporate some inefficiency. So when it is time to perform in your arena, you are more efficient. I, th I think that's a great point. And I'll offer a practical example of that. You know, I worked in the NBA mm -hmm. and we want to train, let's say we want to train a power forward to be stable under the basket, but as soon as they have to transition from offense to defense, let's say, they've got to move very quickly right. and get down the court. So the easiest way to move is to make your base of support as small as possible mm -hmm. so that you can get your center of mass beyond your base and start displacing. Mm -hmm. That's what you want to do in a performance context. But in a training context, what I'm going to do is make the base of support as big as possible which forces the performer to have to accelerate their center of mass beyond this base, which mm -hmm. means it has to go farther before you actually start to displace. But again, there's a threshold there. If you make it too big and you're forcing them to work too hard to overcome that challenge, there's a risk. So the point here, though, is you train people in an inefficient way in order to get them efficient when the time requires it. Right. And I agree. I think that's a great approach to the problem. Well, all right. So I think we've covered efficiency pretty well here. PJ, any final parting thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So there's some additional things that we're going to um, introduce in some future episodes that I think coming off of this discussion of mm -hmm. efficiency that I think our listeners will find really appealing. Mm -hmm. uh, but for now, uh, I think we've pretty much wrapped this one up. What do All you right. think? All right. Yeah, I feel good about it. Okay. Thanks, Gigi. All right. Bye, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Fitness for Consumption. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we love creating it for you. Now, we want to hear from you. So drop us a comment at our Instagram account, at Fitness for Consumption, and give us your take on what the hardest thing to do in sports is and why and we'll pick an entry at random and bring someone on the show to talk about it. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to help us out by following us on our Instagram page at Fitness for Consumption, subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast on your preferred listening platform, and sharing the love by inviting some friends to listen to Fitness for Consumption. Thanks, everyone.